1: Hello and welcome to the Stronger Minds podcast, where I, Kimberly Wilson, chartered psychologist, bring you the latest information and research on how to build healthy brains and strong minds. I am absolutely delighted to be able to bring you an interview with a researcher whom I admire hugely and who is helping to change our understanding of the role of diet on brain and mental health. My guest is Professor Felice Jacker. Felice is a psychiatric epidemiologist working in the new field of nutritional psychiatry which she helped to establish. Her PhD was the first to examine the impact of overall dietary intake as opposed to individual foods or supplements on mental health risk and she led the SMILES trial, a groundbreaking randomized controlled trial using dietary improvement as an adjunct treatment for depression. In the episode, Felice gives a behind the scenes look at what it was like conducting that research and the reaction from the international science community. One of the many things I admire about Felice is her tenacity in undertaking her research in the face of years of condescension from some colleagues in medicine. So it gives me great pleasure to be able to bring you this conversation with this inspiring woman. Felice, thank you so much for joining me almost in the middle of the night from Australia.
2: (laughs) It's such a pleasure. I'm really, really delighted to be here.
1: Um, And I'm just, I'm so happy that we've got a chance to talk and that we'll be able to talk about your work, which has influenced my work Enormously, So I guess my first thing to do is to say thank you very much for that. Well, I take
2: that as a great compliment, so thank you. (laughs)
1: Um, And I think maybe it's a good place to start just for people who are unfamiliar. I think unfamiliar with you, but also unfamiliar unfamiliar with your field of work to introduce yourself. So how would you introduce yourself?
2: Well, um, I'm what we call an epidemiologist, which is a mouthful, but it basically means... um, the primary way in which I do research is to look at um, data and information that we collect from people, and use lots of very complicated statistics to put them together and test hypotheses to try and discover, you know, how certain exposures, ways we behave, things that happen to us affect our risk for disease. Mm-hmm. And I'm a psychiatric epidemiologist, so it means that I really focus on mental health. Mm-hmm. But more recently, I've I've started to do clinical work as well, so doing um, you know randomised control trials and those sorts of things. And I'm a professor at Deakin University in Australia, and I'm the director of the Food and Mood Centre at Deakin, which is unique in the world in its focus on what we call nutritional psychiatry. Mm-hmm. And I'm also president of the International Society for Nutritional Psychiatry Research, which is another big mouthful.
1: Yeah. (laughs) A busy busy woman. Thank you for making the time. So there are lots of questions in there. And I think I'm certainly aware of lots of um, critiques and, well, attacks, really, of epidemiology and nutrition. But, Mm. mm, (laughs) hmm, But let's start with what is nutritional psychiatry because it's a really new field, isn't it?
2: That's right. And we we sort of coined that term. And when I say we, uh, myself and a couple of my close collaborators um, coined that term to describe a field of research that focuses on how diet and nutrition affects our mental and brain health. And it it, it focuses on diet as a risk factor for mental and brain um, ill Mm. health but also diet as a potential treatment and also as a preventive strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is really, I suppose, coming more from the public health Mm -hmm. side of things.
1: Yeah, because certainly here, I'm a governor on a, a specialist mental health trust here in the UK. And I went to a big NHS training program for governors earlier on in the year. And the real shift in the NHS, partly because of funding, is towards prevention um like finally right well done guys but we partly something
2: like i I heard this amazing statistic uh and i'm not sure if i've got exactly right but cuba has the health budget that's about five percent of that of the united states but their mortality rates from hospitalization from you know childbirth etc are the same as the us because they spend that small amount of money on prevention rather than treatment
1: that's extraordinary. And especially when you think about just the levels of poverty in Cuba and the limitations on on health and access to food, actually. Because I, I went to Cuba a few years ago and, you know, people are still queuing for food and there's still lots of empty shelves. Um, yeah. That's extraordinary. And it's a real kind of indictment, isn't it, on, on the West, on the UK, on America, that our health... Well, our health systems are so upside down, I think.
2: That's right. They're really geared towards treatment. And treatment is fantastic. I mean, no problems at all with medical science and new treatments for diseases, including mental health problems. Really fantastic. Enormously grateful for them. Mm. But putting all your eggs in the treatment basket Mm. seems to me a really poor strategy And I think with psychiatry, one of the key issues is that if you think about the risk factors for mental disorders, they're things like family history and genetics, Mm -hmm. um, early life trauma, life stress, uh, social uh, poverty and disadvantage. Now, these are all things that are really tough to change. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why no country, to my knowledge, has a proper um, prevention policy, prevention blueprint uh, mm. because it's only recently that we've started to understand that these lifestyle behaviors and of course other things such as parenting practices mm. are really good strategies for prevention um, of mental disorders and so we can actually start to think about prevention because these things are modifiable
1: yeah and that's one of the the extraordinary things one of the I do a, a seminar on um, lifestyle factors for mental health and i, I, I well it'd be good to ask you about this as well because certainly when I've been talking to colleagues about the fact that nutrition and things like exercise and stress management might pay, play quite an important part in mental health risk I've been met with kind of furrowed eyebrows raised eyebrows <laughs> looks of doubt um, and and I think that's and I start my seminars with an apology to my audience on behalf of psychology and psychiatry because we've made this real distinction between the mind and the body you know this kind of the the cartesian separation where anything that happens in the brain is solely associated with the brain the body has nothing to do with it so we're going to give you medication or talking therapies and ignore the fact that everything that happens in your brain is embedded in your body whether that's movement or nutrition or stress or uh, immunology and it's just this extraordinary shift in the thinking around mental health that's beginning to happen but is it we're quite far from really accepting it's only it it's
2: really the young practitioners i see who are starting to recognize this and they they, they see it as sort of self-evident whereas the mm. older ones particularly you know the systems in which they were trained really just focus on the medical model it's all about treatments all about discrete molecules in the brain and how they all talk to each other and you know, uh, let's treat the brain and and this is where mental disorders live. Mm. Um, I think the big challenge to that started around the late 1990s when this field of what we call psychoneuroimmunology, which is how the immune system and the the brain are linked, uh, simply speaking, came into prominence and people started to um, publish data suggesting that the immune system actually played a really important role in mental and brain health. Mm -hmm. And now that, of course, has has expanded a lot. And um, I didn't come into psychiatry research until pretty late. It was my second career. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I didn't start my PhD until 2005. But over those previous few years where I'd studied psychology and then I'd um, I'd done my honours in medical science, sort of focusing on epidemiology. I'd been really struck by the fact that there were no really um, rigorous data at all looking at the role of nutrition Mm. in mental health. And the stuff that was out there was, by and large, pretty poor quality um, and very fluffy, Mm. which, of course, didn't do the whole field any favours whatsoever. Mm. And... I was really, really interested in this idea of how the immune system and how what, what we call systemic inflammation, which is sort of this low-grade activation of the immune system, mm-hmm. was becoming. it was becoming clear that this was a risk factor for depression in particular and that depression itself, people with depression, at least half of them will have this elevated immune response, this inflammation, and that these two things were connected. And then at about the same time, there was a lot of work coming out of um, a particular group in UCLA where they were looking at this part of the brain called the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. And of course, up until about 15 years ago or so, we thought that we were born with our full complement of neurons Mm. and that you only lost neurons. You didn't get any new ones. And then they figured out that there was actually a couple of regions of the brain, one of which being the hippocampus, that does grow new neurons all the way through life and in fact that's part of how it does what it does because the hippocampus is a seat of learning and memory in the Mm. brain but it's also really important in mental health and when you know we think about this medical model of depression and this idea that we don't have enough serotonin so you take these antidepressants and that gives you more serotonin and that's how it works well, actually, there's very little evidence that that's how it works, but one of the things that's interesting is that if you um, uh, do have an animal model where you kind of block the pathways that lead to the hippocampus and, and this growth in, in the hippocampus, mm-hmm. antidepressants don't work in these animal models. So we think that the, the hippocampus is very important. It's really a target of antidepressant treatment mm-hmm. and Diet has a very quick and profound impact on the hippocampus, as does exercise. So these two bits of information, the immune system, which of course we know diet is a very important determinant of immune immune functioning and inflammation, and then the hippocampus and this brain plasticity, both Mm. obviously being influenced by diet, these made me think, well, we really should be looking at this because... um, we're missing something here. Mm. You know, we don't mm. now just consider depression to just happen in the brain. We're starting to think about it as a whole body disorder. We see this very close relationship between metabolism, you know, people's metabolic health and mm-hmm. their mental health. All of these things were pointing to diet and nutrition as being important. And that's what prompted me to start my research career.
1: Fantastic. And and did you come across any, uh, I guess, doubt or cynicism when you said, hey, guys, I'm going to be looking at nutrition. The- <laughs> <laughs> oh, <man. laughs>
2: So much. I'll take i take that mean, as a yes. Particularly, you know, as a woman too, I sort of almost oh. had pats on the head, like, and and, you know, that was the nice ones, particularly the older male people from the medical profession. Um, who just thought I was, you know, a a, a hippie (laughs) and a bit flaky and the whole bit. And um, that went on for quite a few years. And I really like being able to say I told you so. Mm. I really uh, like, um, I mean, I I find science is so wonderful like that because if you're a good scientist, you know what to do to test a hypothesis Mm -hmm. and to see whether your hypothesis is supported by your data. So... Because I did my PhD and it ended up on the front cover of the American Journal of Psychiatry because it was the first study to look at <laughs> diet and mental health, that gave me an in with a lot of other research groups around the world where they'd actually collected data on diet, they mm-hmm. collected data on mental health, they collected data on all the other things that might explain the link, so things like you know people's income and education and their body weight, other health behaviours. And because those data are already sitting there, I was able to actually go and work with different research groups around the world to test this hypothesis that nutrition was linked to mental health um, in many different countries, many different cultures, many different age groups, and within a relatively short space of time build up a pretty robust and consistent evidence base. And then, of course, others started to join in and we Mm. started to see studies popping up left right and center including from you know asia and, and all over europe and america and britain so this whole field started to burgeon and then the data were very very consistent it it showed over and over again that the quality of people's diets was linked to their whether or not they had depression but also their risk for depression it seemed to be independent of people's socioeconomic status, its their, their um, body weight, their uh, other health behaviours. It didn't seem to be explained by reverse causality. So here we're talking about long-term associations. Certainly, obviously, when you have a mental disorder, that can certainly affect your appetite and your eating behaviour and your self-care and everything else. But the data I'm talking about were more long-term data where they would exclude everyone from that sample that they were going to analyze who'd already had depression or had um, elevated depressive symptoms, and then look going forward to see whether the quality of people's diets at the start predicted their risk of depression over time. And so uh, over the last, it's only been nine years now, we have a number of meta-analyses. That's when you bring together all of the research that's been done, and you kind of do a big set of statistics on it. And they are all pretty consistently showing that diet uh, quality is a risk factor for depression. So as the data became more and more solid, as it became clear that it more or less adhered to what we call the Bradford Hill criteria, which are criteria that you can apply to observational data, these ones where you're not actually experimenting, but you're just looking at what's going on and putting them together using statistics. We could apply these criteria to sort of say, well looks like it it fits the bill for a causal relationship Mm. but of course then you have to test these things in an experiment to Mm. see whether there is truly a causal relationship so we have very large amount of data from the observational research we have a large amount of data now from the animal research showing that if you manipulate diet you get an impact on the brain on behavior all those sorts of things but it's only in the last twelve months or so that we've had the randomised control trials. There's only two of them. Uh, one was ours, and one was another run by colleagues of ours in South Australia that have said, "Okay, so it looks like these things are linked. What about if we take people who have clinical depression and we help them to improve their diet, and let's see if it actually has an impact on their mental health?" And that's what we did.
1: And that piece of research just reverberated around the world and i mean i can what was it like for you we'll talk about the research in a sec but what was it like to have that response to have have been working on this idea for a long time and looking at the epidemiology and seeing this trend and then kind of being the well being the first ones in the world to be putting it under randomized control conditions and then to have the response that it had what was that like for you
2: it was it was really quite strange because um, I'd sort of, you know, taken a bit of pride in being, you know, the first person to do this and the first person to look at it in adolescence, in children, in pregnant women, blah blah blah. Um, but still having a huge amount of skepticism because mm. of, of the fact that there's a lot of question marks about nutritional epidemiology um, for things for reasons that we can talk about mm. in a minute. But yeah. um, when I wrote. And design the study protocol. I was only just finishing off my PhD, so I was like a real baby researcher, you know. But I just knew that this was important to do because this was the obvious next step. It was the gap. It was the thing we needed to understand. So I put a lot of work and time and effort into trying to design a, a protocol that would, as far as possible with diet, um, be able to test this in a randomized controlled trial design. And then it took two years to get the funding, but then I was able to get the funding, although. They cut the budget a lot, so we had we had to do things on a shoestring, which was mm-hmm. challenging. And we, you know, we just used students who were doing their PhDs, who also were dietitians, and they designed the diet. and We did everything on the smell of an oily rag, <laughs> and it was a really, really tough study to do. It was so hard to recruit for. Um, oh, really? We didn't get any. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't think so. But we we didn't get any support from doctors and psychiatrists and things, which is not unusual in general in science. But Mm. I think that there was a level of scepticism that prevented doctors and and psychiatrists from recommending that their patients Mm -hmm. go and do this trial. People were also reluctant to to go into it because they knew they had a 50-50 chance of getting um, in the social support condition.
1: Sure, sure. And if you're depressed, then obviously that's...
2: Yeah, that's right, and there's a sort of, um, people wanted the dietary stuff, and Mm. we said, but the social support stuff, we, we already know that that's helpful for people with depression, it's what we call a befriending protocol, it's used in CBT trials, we know that it's helpful for people to just go and talk to someone, and that's our control condition, so we're saying Look, we don't know whether diet's going to be helpful if you change your diet. That's what we're trying to find out. But we do know that befriending is helpful. So, you know, you've got a 50-50 chance. But that, you know, the people who were attracted to the study really wanted some help with their diet. Mm-hmm. And um, so we recruited far fewer people than we'd hoped to. And it took longer. Mm-hmm. And because we had a small sample size, and if you know about randomized control trials in psychiatry, you actually need pretty big sample Mm. size because there's a very high placebo response. You know, almost anything will help people with depression to feel better over time because you get what's called regression to the mean. And Mm -hmm. that just basically means people tend to get better. If you leave them alone. Their own. Yeah. Almost anything is helpful. So whether it's bibliotherapy, that means going and reading self-help books, whether it's just going and talking to someone, whether it's getting psychotherapy, all of these things tend to help. But there is a big placebo response. So you actually mm-hmm. need a large sample. And because we didn't have that, I did not for a second think that there was going to be um, an effect, if you like. Mm-hmm. We didn't think that there was going to be anything to report at all. And so when the statistician did the stats... We thought that she'd got something wrong. We, we, we actually just thought, no, 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 that can't be right. Um, and then we checked and triple checked and then we unblinded it and we saw that group A and group B, which was which, and it was just, it was really, really astounding. So, of course, we were really excited. And then we went on and did more looking at the data and we saw that the degree to which people changed or improved their diet correlated really closely with how much their depression improved. Oh so that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And then also the, the PhD student who is a dietitian, her mum is a professor of health economics and she was really interested to see whether the diet we were advocating, was more or less expensive than the diet, Mm -hmm. sort of junky food diet that people were eating when they came into the study. So they did a very, very detailed and careful cost analysis. And they found that our diet that we were advocating was cheaper. So that was really awesome.
1: That's fantastic, Um, isn't it? Because there there are so one of the big complaints and sometimes it's a fair one, but sometimes it's just a, a way of attacking new ideas yes. is that you know eating well is expensive so it's elitist and therefore you're not taking into consideration people's the limits on people's budgets
2: mm. and I think that there's some um, absolute truth to that mm-hmm. because of the way our systems, certainly in Australia are set up where I think we should be you know, putting a tax on all sorts of junk and processed foods and using that to subsidize um, healthy foods. But mm-hmm. that's another story. What we show is that if you – well, I think about it like instead of a, a Mediterranean diet, which does kind of have an elitist idea about it, I think of it as a peasant food diet. Mm-hmm. So peasant food in the old days, it was lots and lots of beans. And these, of course, you can get dried beans for a dollar a packet and they will take you a long way. Um, you can use frozen vegetables. You can use vegetables that are in season, but you know, there's so many of them that you can get them at the end of the day mm-hmm. from the grocer really, really cheaply. You can use tin fish. You don't have to have fresh fish. All of these sorts of things are just sort of common-sense strategies. You can make a huge pot of bean, soup with Mm -hmm. some you know stock and bones that are cheap and lots of veggies and that'll last you all week so you can do things that are cheap and easy and don't take a lot of time and that's really what we've been emphasizing but going back to the publication of Mm. the study I really wanted to get the word out there about it um I'm quite experienced at writing press releases and I know what appeals to the media (laughs) and I thought right I'm going to get this out there and get it on the um, agenda and I knew a lot of the the journalists and things in Australia so um, the press release went out but even then I was surprised by just the response because I don't think even now we go for a a month without another big article on it somewhere Mm. in the world like it's had a really big impact And that's marvellous. But what was even more marvellous, I think, is that it was replicated only a few months later in another study where they had a larger sample size. They did this one in a group-based setting rather than one-on-one. And they found the same thing. And they also found that the degree of dietary change correlated with the degree of improvement in depression. They also have found that it's cost-effective. And this is the other thing. We did a proper economic evaluation of this and I think, if anything, this is even more important. We found that the people who were in the dietary support group, so the ones who were going and seeing a dietitian and being helped to just make those really simple changes to their diet, reducing the junk food and the sweets and the ice creams and things, increasing the vegetables, the fruits, having some legumes, having some having whole grain instead of refined flours, having some fish and olive oil. Um, So the people in that group compared to the social support condition cost about $3,000 less than the ones in the social support condition Mm. because they lost less time out of their role and they also saw other health professionals less often. So they went to see the doctor or the physiotherapist or whatever less often. And what this is saying is that this approach is helping the whole person. It's not just a bit of their brain it's helping them because we know that people with depression very often it goes along with increased risk of overweight obesity diabetes metabolic syndrome cardiovascular disease all of these things and all of those disorders are also risk factors for depression and if you take a dietary approach that tackles all of those things at the same time so it's going to have an impact on your overall functioning and the second study that was done in South Australia found the same thing so this is saying you know this Huge burden of illness that's associated with depression uh, and all the comorbid illness, physical illness that goes with it. We take a dietary approach, this is going to potentially save a whole lot of money.
1: And it's that economic argument, really, which is probably going to be the big seller for government medical interventions, aren't they? I mean, that's the one. That's the one that the NHS is going to be paying attention to. I'm assuming that's what's going to happen in the States because. It's the fiscal burden on governments of people's ah. ill health because we had a few years ago, it was the, it was the Layard report um, uh-huh. out here. So it was Lord Layard uh, out of the um, the London School of Economics. And he did his big report on the essentially the economic burden of mental health on the UK. And uh-huh. it was looking at how many days lost of work, you know, how much income and all of that that was lost through things like depression and anxiety and, it was obviously an enormous number and out of Layard came what's called IAPT, the increased access to psychological therapies out here. And it's this big scheme where they trained up a lot of people to provide short term or high or low intensity CBT, essentially um, huh. to people with depression with the aim of getting them essentially, and perhaps a bit cynically, and certainly from a, a therapist perspective, just get them well enough to get back to work. But A few years on, we've seen that it's not been as effective as we thought it would be. Um, People aren't having the outcomes that they wanted. It's not been a long term shift. So it started out as a kind of economic investment, but it's not panning out the way it needs to be. And so I'm certainly thinking we need to go back to the drawing board, guys, and think about how we address the root causes, essentially, how are we going, not just to get people well enough to go back to the environments that perhaps were making them sick in the first place.
2: I I mean, really, and this is where the prevention argument comes in. Like, We know we have a very similar experience in Australia and uh, we have the Better Access Scheme where people can go and see psychologists for a certain number of sessions Mm. a year and that's been enormously popular, which means it's been a lot more expensive than the government expected. We've had increased access to antidepressant treatment and to care, reduced stigma. All of these things theoretically should be having an impact on the prevalence of, of depression and mental health problems at the population level. But they're not. They're not making any difference. Mm. If anything, there's, uh, you know, some data to suggest that things might be getting worse. So I think we have to be thinking about prevention alongside better types of treatment. And we can, we know that we can prevent at least some cases of depression if we tackle the the root causes. And of course, they do. Uh, they are very much around poverty and social disadvantage and. Poor parenting practices, Mm -hmm. often when people are not well supported, Mm -hmm. access to education, good quality childcare, all of these things can prevent mental disorders. But of course, it's also around our really, really toxic environment. Mm. So our food environments have changed so profoundly. And this started back in the late 1800s. It's not a new thing. And it's gradually just got worse and worse and worse to the point now where our food environment is so toxic that unhealthy diet accounts for the leading cause of Mm. early death in middle and high-income countries. It's number two overall. It's number one in men. So, you know, get your head around that. It's poor diet that is the leading cause of early death. It's not malaria or HIV or anything else. At the same time, mental disorders account for the leading global burden of disability They cost billions and billions and billions, trillions of dollars Mm. to business, to the public health purse, to communities, everything. The fact that those two leading health risks are linked has enormous implications for public health, for prevention and Mm. for treatment. And that's that's the space we're working in and and arguing um, for change.
1: Mm. Yeah, and I was just looking at some... um... Because over here in the UK, dementia is now the leading cause of death for women, and women have a, a you know twice the risk of dementia. And for a long time, as men, sorry, um, and for a long time, the question was around: is it something to do with oestrogen that increases women's risk? And yes, possibly. But we've also been hearing dementia and Alzheimer's disease be called type three diabetes, and looking at metabolic issues with kind of glucose uptake in the brain and then there was was it was it two years ago a big global study that did the same thing that said a third it was 35 percent of global alzheimer's disease risk or cases could be prevented if people took optimum and it was very much best case scenario but if people took these optimum lifestyle interventions we could reduce global alzheimer's disease risk by 35 percent and i just thought Uh That's just extraordinary.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it's about the same for cancer too. You know, I mean, there's many cancers that you couldn't change, and there's nothing. The, the fittest, healthiest person in the world may still get cancer, but there are some people who will develop cancer because they uh, of their lifestyle behaviours. And about a third, it's estimated. Um, so the cost saving is extraordinary mm. if you tackle the food environment, but the vested interests are so huge. They're just so enormous. Something like 70 of the top 100 companies in the world make these processed, ultra-processed food products. And it means that you know nowadays something like sixty percent of average intake, uh, energy intake in the US is from these ultra processed food products. Mm. It's about thirty five to forty percent in Australia, probably similar in the UK,
1: yeah,
2: so. um, and of course around the developing economies now we're seeing huge shift in disease because of their changing food environment. And yet it's been so difficult to even get the bare minimum. Of taxation changes, legislation changes. You know, you guys have got the the, the sugar tax, the soda mm-hmm. tax. We can't even get that happening in Australia, despite this massive, you know, global problem. And, I mm-hmm. mean, if this was a, Ebola, you would have every single resource and every government around the world throwing everything at it. Mm-hmm. But because it's snuck up so slowly, and because the vested interests are so huge, and they're so influential because of the the, the Economic aspect. Um, we're not getting any traction, and we we absolutely urgently need to change the food environment. Trying to put it back on individuals is it, it just doesn't work. Mm. Um, we know that food, in the same way that alcohol and cigarettes and drugs and you know all of those sorts of things, they inter- food interacts with the reward systems mm. in our brain. We have these very, very finely tuned homeostatic systems for regulating our food intake that very readily get overwhelmed and then completely out of whack when we have uh, too much food, too much energy, too much of the wrong sorts of foods. We become overweight. Once those things are in train, it's almost impossible to reverse them. We know that only about 3% of people will lose any, you know, an appreciable weight and keep it off. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult because... Your body and your brain uh, do all these things to try and keep the weight on. Mm -hmm. And how on earth can you resist the temptation to consume these food products that interact with the reward systems in our brain when they're absolutely everywhere? Mm -hmm. You can't even fill up your car with petrol without being bombarded with, you know, chips and lollies and ice cream and and soda and everything and and every street corner. I I say it's like having a crack den on every corner. (laughs) You know, it's just mm. while we're, our food environment is as it is, it is so difficult for any individual to fight back against that. And it's usually the ones who have the resources and they have the education and they have the, the support structures that can. But for many, many people, it's very difficult.
1: Yeah, and I think it's, it's a real cop out on the side of, of government and, and food lobbyists to say that it's an individual responsibility. You just need to try harder. You just need to you know be more organized because what we know is that, of course, we have this incredibly strong evolutionary drive to consume food. And yeah. that drive is also driven by, you know, the intake of high density foods. And we need to, our body is always in survival mode. And so we will be incentivized to eat and food companies know this, right? This is why yeah. McDonald's, who is one of the biggest companies in, in the entire world, still has an enormous marketing budget. Why you still see adverts for it because they need to keep reminding you of the availability yeah. of their food, um, so that it's front of mind and that psychologically that's the way we work and that it? it's front of mind. It's the first thing I see. It's the thing that I'm going to be more inclined to move towards. Yeah, no, I think it's a real travesty, and I. And, and I'm very sceptical about this idea that people should just take their own health into their own hands completely because oh, yeah. we know that's just not the way that it it's works. It's
2: just a pop out. It's, it's just, and this is the danger. And I think what we see, what I've seen a little hint of in the conversation, which I think is extremely worrying. And you see this with the sort of right wing governments who put all this emphasis on individualism is the uh, What I'm worried about is that they will take this research around nutrition mm. and mental health and turn it around and suggest that somebody became depressed because they didn't eat right, they didn't exercise, they smoked cigarettes, and therefore it's their fault. And then if Ooh. they don't get better, it's because they haven't changed those behaviours, so it's their fault. That's a danger. Gosh. And I could see that because that's the rhetoric that comes from that side Mm. of you know conservative sort of thinking yeah um an individual responsibility and it's that is really really dangerous i think
1: yeah and i hadn't i hadn't thought about that but i think you're absolutely right that any way that this can be spun to take the pressure off the government to step in and do more to protect people essentially yeah, that's a really interesting idea. It occurs yeah. to me, though, that we haven't, for the benefit of people who aren't familiar with the SMILES trial and the kind of details of the study, um, that we haven't spoken about it. So perhaps we should do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I think I'm so used to talking about it, but there's going to be a whole group of people who have no idea what we're talking about. So should we go through the protocols and the recruitment? Who took part in the trial? How long it took? And and what the what the intervention actually
2: Yeah, so the SMILES trial was set up to test this hypothesis that if we took people with clinical depression and we helped them to make positive changes to their diet, that it would have an impact on their depressive symptoms. And so we recruited people, adults, who had major depression. They had to qualify as having major depression. We did a proper formal assessment. They also had to have a poor diet to start with. There's no point recruiting someone to a dietary trial when they already have a fabulous diet. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, given that, well, certainly in Australia, only about 5% of people eat according to the dietary guidelines, and that's even worse in people with depression, that was pretty easy. We, we only excluded, I think, about six people on the basis of the fact that their diet was too good. So they had to be depressed. They had to have a poor diet. Um They couldn't have something like a bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or another serious disease or a serious physical illness like cancer or something like that. So there weren't too many exclusions. They could be on other forms of treatment, um, although we did, I think, from memory, exclude on the basis of treatment resistance. So people had failed lots of different types of treatment Uh, we did exclude them and that's a whole other conversation Mm. itself that's around trial methodology and I I think in depression it's a very interesting conversation but anyway that was uh, what we did so they were depressed they had poor diets Um, their BMI of the whole group the average BMI was about 30 so most of them were sort of in the overweight obese category which is pretty similar for the rest of the population and they were randomly assigned once they, you know, we found that they were eligible. They were randomly assigned to receive either what we call dietary support or social support. So the social support condition was what we call a befriending condition. Now, this is something that has been designed, developed and tested to work as a... Um, A control condition often used as a control condition for CBT trials Mm -hmm. or psychotherapy trials because what you want to do is control for the face-to-face interaction that you have with somebody, you know, that therapeutic Mm -hmm. alliance that you have with whoever it is that you're speaking with. And um, we know that just talking to someone about anything, you know, talking about your kids or your grandkids or the football or playing Scrabble or You know what you did on the weekend that just that interaction with another human being where they actually care They're listening. They're asking you questions that can be really helpful for people with depression So that was our control condition and then the dietary intervention was simply speaking. They saw a dietitian clinical dietitian we had two in the study and One of them was a PhD student and she along with her supervisor Who's a really one of the world experts in the Mediterranean diet she developed the, the diet. We called it a modified Mediterranean diet. And that's because it was like a, a traditional Mediterranean diet in that it promoted lots of, uh, plant foods, you know, vegetables, fruits, uh, legumes. So that's your chickpeas and lentils and things mm-hmm. like that. Nuts and seeds, olive oil and fish. But what it also suggested was a uh, moderate intake of low fat dairy and a moderate intake of red meat. So that means, according to the Australian Dietary Guidelines, and that's where it diverged a bit from a mm-hmm. traditional Mediterranean diet, which tends to be pretty low in meat and dairy. So it was a bit of a merging between Mediterranean diet and the Australian Dietary Guidelines. And so people came and they saw somebody seven times, first weekly, then fortnightly, over a three-month period. So it went for 12 weeks. So they either saw a dietitian or they saw a research person who did this befriending protocol, which is not therapy. It's just talking about things that people enjoy talking about. And so over that 12-week period, the people in the dietary support group were helped to set their own goals, to identify things that they would like to change themselves, and then to have support to be able to achieve those goals. So that would be things like reducing their junk food intake or reducing their sweets, and increasing the number of vegetables every day that they ate, increasing mm-hmm. the amount of fruit they ate, getting legumes and things into their diet where they might not have otherwise eaten them, mm-hmm. same with nuts and seeds, using olive oil. We really, you know, um, promoted the use of quite liberal use of olive oil and fish. And a really important aspect of this is this was not a diet about weight loss at mm-hmm. all people were not, we, we just didn't even have that conversation. We know from all the observational literature that the link between diet and mental health seems to be quite independent of weight. And so this was not anything to do with weight and nobody's weight changed in the, in the study um, as a result. And so we, we assessed their mental health at the start, their depression, and at the end we did the same thing. And very simply speaking, we compared the depression scores in the two groups. Um, And we found that those who got the dietary support, so both groups got better, they improved, which is what we always would see in a depression trial. Mm -hmm. But the ones who got the dietary support improved a lot more than the ones who got the social support. Mm -hmm. And in fact, about 30% of the people in the dietary support group um, improved, actually achieved what we call clinical remission. Mm -hmm. That is that they weren't classified as depressed anymore. And that was compared to about eight percent in the social support group, yes. so that was the very unexpected and very exciting finding because they were um uh because we had such a small sample size, mm-hmm. we really didn't expect to see that at all
1: i mean it's just it's just incredible and um i there are a few a few questions because I know in the paper you didn't talk about the mechanisms, but do you have any kind of uh hypotheses about the mechanisms by which this is? this effect is happening
2: look i think it needs a lot more work you know future trials will definitely get much better quality biological Mm -hmm. data we did take blood samples um and we did look at things like lipid change in lipids change in Mm -hmm. blood glucose we tried to look at inflammatory markers but i don't think the way that those assessments were done was perfect um We didn't see any changes in lipids or glucose but talking to the people who, I guess, know about that that side of things, metabolism, which is not my field, but the the other people within the trial team, they said that that's not completely unexpected that within that time frame that Mm -hmm. you wouldn't see it. We don't know whether it was because people reduced their junk and processed foods or because they increased their, their good foods. So from that trial, we weren't able to get any sense of what the mechanisms were. What we can say is that it didn't seem to be down to an improvement in self-efficacy. You know, like mm-hmm. people obviously, when they start to look after themselves, that sense of self improving their self-care, that is very powerful. So we assumed that that could be a really important mechanism, but we didn't see that that necessarily explained. Mm-hmm. We didn't see a huge shift there. We didn't see any change in body weight, so that wasn't, a cause, nobody changed their physical activity levels or smoking rates or any of those things. There didn't seem to be any other obvious reasons. But what we know from the other literature, so this is mainly at this stage the animal experiments, is that diet has a very profound effect on the immune system, um, on the gut microbiome and gut health and on brain plasticity, and all of those things are intricately linked with depression risk. We think our best bet at the moment is it's going to be around the gut primarily, but that doesn't preclude also direct mechanisms of action. So really importantly, I mentioned before that there's a lot of animal studies that have looked at the impact of dietary components on this part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is very important in mental health. And we published the first study in humans in 2015 and in that study we looked at older adults we looked at their diet quality quite comprehensively we took into account a very large range of potential important variables things such as their levels of disadvantage and poverty but their depression life stress all sorts of other things and we looked at their hippocampal size So we had MRI images on about 250 of these people and we looked at that against their diet quality and we saw this very clear gradient. People with the lowest level of diet quality had much smaller hippocampus than those Mm -hmm. who had the highest level. And this wasn't a trivial association. It was actually quite a big, uh, what we call an effect size. And since then, just in the last 12 months, there's been two other papers that have been published one from Britain from the, the Whitehall 2 cohort study and another big one from Scotland with over 4,000 people in it, showing the same thing. So we think brain plasticity is something that an important part of this picture, but we also know that the gut and its microbiota have an impact on brain plasticity as well. We just mm. don't know how as yet. Uh, but the gut, of course, is very important in immune regulation, immune um, and systemic inflammation. Mm. It's very important in... Regulating gene activity, uh, very important in the integrity of the blood-brain barrier. We know that if you take poo from someone who's depressed and you put it into an animal, you can induce a depressive-type behavior in that animal. Um, there's a whole range of different parts. Or a whole, uh, there's many different bits of evidence that suggest that the gut is involved in yeah. mental and brain health. And the most important thing that affects the gut is diet and it affects it very, very quickly. So mm. our money is on the gut. Most of, uh, at the Food and Mood Centre, we're doing, oh, gee, more than 20 studies at the moment and almost all of them are looking at diet, the gut, mental health <laughs> in humans. Because this is what we want to know. Fantastic. And at the moment, most of the research in the gut stuff is in animals. You know, you can't necessarily extrapolate that. So yeah. finding out what we should eat for our gut health, we think will give us a lot of clues about what we should eat for our mental health.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, because I think the um, the gut stuff is really, really fascinating. And I, I spoke to Professor John Cryan uh, a little while back on the pod and about his, his animal research. And he was, of course, you know, incredibly cautious about it. But I think there's, there's so much coming out of the the gut research that we really need to start paying attention to and not to jump to huge conclusions and i know you just recently published a paper kind of recommending that we do some more research in this area um but yeah again to kind of take nutrition and its effect on the body and on the mind much more seriously i was really struck by the fact that in the smiles trial that weight didn't seem to be an issue because i think one of the criticisms that's leveled at this kind of research is yes well the people lost weight and so they would feel better wouldn't they so i think it's it's very helpful isn't it that people improved without any significant shift in their in their body weight
2: and there's a few aspects to that so certainly if you look to the animal literature you see experiments where you'll see big shifts in behavior in animals with dietary change well before you see any shifts in weight so there's a much more direct and immediate impact it would seem on the brain and behavior that's coming from the animal studies. The big issue, I think, with our changed food environment and the conversation around that is that all of the emphasis has been on obesity. And what, why that has been a problem is that people find it very, very difficult to lose weight. I mentioned before that something like only 3% of people can lose an appreciable amount of weight and keep it off because of these systems that we have that try and make us put back on weight. And so what happens if you have the whole conversation about body weight is that people change their diet with a view to losing weight. They can't lose weight or they do and then they put it back on again. And then they give up and they go, oh, gosh, I might as well eat the burgers, you know. And our message is, well, actually, this is nothing about your weight. This is to do with a direct impact on your mental and brain health of the quality of your diet. And then the third aspect, of course, is that there is no doubt that overweight and obesity are risk factors for depression. That's mm-hmm. been shown many times. And um, conversely, people who are depressed have much more of a tendency to put on body weight, particularly mm. around their stomach, um, because the impact of the stress hormone seems to um, add to adipose tissue around the stomach. And People who are overweight obese who have an increased risk of depression, we think that at least in part it may be because that truncal fat is very um, active from an immune point of view Mm -hmm. and increases systemic inflammation, which Mm -hmm. we know is a risk factor for depression. So there is a bidirectional relationship between depression and weight. There's no doubt about that. But when it comes to this diet-mental health link, it seems to be independent, so Mm -hmm. over and above that, if you like.
1: Fantastic. Um, I'm I'm thinking that there. One of the things that struck me earlier on as well is I think one of the issues about it was when we were talking about um, individual responsibility, and and how difficult it is to get older people, older professionals, either government to take this area seriously. And, and I think one of the issues is how controversial nutrition science can be or maybe it's not even that maybe it's not that the science itself is controversial it's that people take controversial positions on the research and there's an awful lot lately I don't know if you get drawn into it or whether you manage to stay out of it on Twitter um it depends on my mood <laughs> <laughs> so if I'm
2: feeling really bulky sometimes I just cannot keep my mouth shut and I just jump in with a sassy comment. <laughs> but mostly I try and keep myself
1: nice. <laughs> because I feel like if I were... Because I'm I, First of all, I'm a psychologist. Um, and people don't tend to think they know what my job is or how to do my job just because they've read a few books. <laughs> but I think... But <laughs> for, for, for nutrition professionals, dietitians, redi- registered nutritionists, I feel like yeah. I would be absolutely incensed the number of people who just think they could do what I do. <laughs> because... <laughs> They've watched a Netflix documentary. I mean, I
2: so, so like because everybody eats, everyone's an expert. You know, that's the, the the point of view. Whereas it doesn't seem to apply with psychology, even though everybody has a brain. everyone has a brain. <laughs> I know. It look. It is in my better moods. It's funny. At other times, I just go, Oh, for goodness' sake! Oh, I just don't believe what I'm seeing here. Um, it's particularly in the U.S. And I think the food system in the U.S. is so totally, completely and almost irretrievably broken and has been for such a long time that people don't even recognize how, how broken and how weird mm. it is. And so this whole push towards these ketogenic diets and low-carb diets and, oh, my God, I lost mm. weight on this, so this must be the diet that cures everything, including cancer and whatever mm. else. Um, let's just ignore all the nutrition research and literature. Um, There's all the conspiracy theories and, you know, Mm -hmm. and and, I mean there's some justifiable criticism about um, nutrition science. I think it's not been particularly good in the past and I also do think there's been conflicts of interest with industry, sponsorship and all of those things. Um, That's not untrue for any other area of medicine and research, I would say. Um, And... oh. The whole area of nutrition, epidemiology and research is certainly cleaning up its act in the last uh, five years or so, Um, but the fact that so many people are willing to just throw the baby out with the Mm -hmm. bathwater, we're just going to ignore this whole massive, massive literature about uh, what we know about food and health uh, because of um, issues with methodology and measurement, and we're just going to therefore just damn the whole lot and You know, there's a very famous researcher called John Ioannidis, and he's played a very Mm. important role in science in being the sceptic and to say, you know, um, there's a lack of reproducibility in in psychological science that we need to take seriously. Mm -hmm. In animal science, you know, uh, the issues, measurement error, uh, not measurement error, but methodological issues, means that we can't necessarily be sure of many things because we don't replicate Uh, journals are incentivized to publish novel findings, which often means that they're not reproducible, they're just a chance finding. There's all sorts of problems in the system and he's really thrown a light on these and this has been very, very good. Unfortunately, he's also tended to damn all of nutritional epidemiology Mm. um, in a way that I think is probably, he's taken it too far. And he wrote a, a very interesting paper recently about nutritional epidemiology, where he sort of, you know, spent the whole paper talking about why we shouldn't believe anything that's been done in the, the research world in regards to nutrition. And then at the end, he says, oh, but we know nutrition's really important for health.
1: Well, so how he how do we know that? <laughs>
2: says, well, how do you actually know that? If, if everything that's been done before is rubbish. How do you actually know that? And, you know, I think it's really important that you don't take too much just from one study. That's why the SMILE study is great Mm and fabulous that we found what we found, but seriously, it's just one study. It's the first study. It's the first step. It was terrific that it was replicated, but there are issues with nutrition research that you just don't have in other areas of Mm. research. A big one is measuring people's diets, and that that is just incredibly fraught Mm. because not only do we you know, is it so complex to measure diet? Because we eat such complex array of foods. We eat them all mixed in together in stir fries and whatever. You know, just the, um, the actual, to mm. be accurate about what we eat is incredibly difficult. But then we also completely lie to ourselves about how much we eat <laughs> oh, yes. and how little of the <laughs> bad stuff and how much of the good stuff we eat. So we're not deliberately trying to lie to the researchers. We're lying to ourselves. But mm. it means that there's a lot of measurement error in, um, you know, when you administer food frequency questionnaires to people or seven-day food diaries or whatever form of measurement you do for that diet, it's almost about, always about 50% wrong. Mm. Um, And that makes it very difficult to do research there. And when it comes to doing intervention studies, you can't blind people to Mm. what they're eating. Um, I mean, there must be some nutrition studies I'm sure where they've sort of been able to lock people up and feed them certain things and have them blinded to to the intention of the the study that's very challenging to do in the real world yeah. you can't randomly assign people to have one group of people to have a junk food diet one people to have a good food diet um It's a challenging space in which to do research. And for that reason, I'm very um, interested in large-scale pragmatic trials. And pragmatic trials are things like you're not trying to really carefully control an experiment. What you do is say, well, out in the real world, what would be the benefit or the impact of doing this? And in this case, if we think about the public health system, and in Australia we have a similar, you know, um, type of thing to the NH&S in terms of being, you know, supported by, funded by the government primarily, mm-hmm. um, you know that depression is one of, if not the, primary reason like for the majority uh, and i'm here talking statistically the majority of of presentations to gps um we have at the moment certainly in australia either you can go and see a psychologist for a certain number of sessions or you can get antidepressant treatment or both we just want to say okay so if we made dietetic support available to people Mm -hmm. with depression and maybe we triaged it based on severity. So some would get psychological therapy, some would get dietetics, some might get both, whatever. You know, it might even be uh, a personal choice of the, the patients. We don't know. But we, if you do that at, at scale and you do it over a long period of time so you have good follow-up data and it's real-world data, does this help people? Does it actually, do they actually change their diets, does it help their, their mental health? Does it help help their physical health? So in our study and also the South Australian study, people were able to change their diet and they loved it because you know so many people have got so many horrible things happening in their life and that's making them really depressed and they don't have much choice or, or control over it. But when they get supported by someone who's clinically trained to help people to make those changes themselves They just love the fact that this is something that they can actually do for themselves. So Mm. people did improve their diets, but we don't know whether they sustain those improvements over the long term. We've had some interactions with a few people who were in the dietary support group in Smiles, and they've told us that they've maintained those changes, and that's been a really life-changing experience for them. But we don't know whether that's true for everybody else. Um, so, these large scale pragmatic trials is something that we're considering doing in Australia, maybe also in Britain with colleagues. Yeah, in come over. Maybe, uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 maybe also in, in Europe as well. So, we may be able to, to do a big pragmatic trial where we actually go, what's the real world impact for people out there of um, allowing them to access dietetic support mm. cheaply or free when they've got depression?
1: That will be fantastic. That's and it's so encouraging. Um, one of the things I do in my clinical practice is to is to track these lifestyle factors because my perspective, my position is that if part of the task of therapy is to create these new neural networks and these new changes, that we can't do that if your brain isn't getting. The kind of substrate it needs for that brain plasticity like it's it's trying to grow new roots in in dry earth so um and what i'm doing next year is to expand the clinic and i'm recruiting right now for a dietitian who has experience working in mental health so that we can give our clients that that backup that support to help make those changes which i certainly absolutely am convinced will support their therapy and support their improvements so I would be absolutely fascinated about that pragmatic trial to see what happens. Yeah,
2: we won't know for a few years, but sure. it's really important research. It's really critical that we, we start the process. Um, one of the other things that we think is really critical is, so at the moment you would know that in medical school, people are not given very much training at all about mm. nutrition and certainly not about public health nutrition. It's very much like, on oh, you know, thou shalt not eat more than 200 milligrams of salt a day or whatever it is you know not not very (laughs) helpful stuff um so we at 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 the food and mood center we've got a fantastic postdoc with a sort of background she's in clinical dietetics but also education and she's developing um we're developing content for undergraduate degrees within our university but we also hope to offer graduate certificates that can be done online
1: oh fantastic and
2: also uh workshops and courses that you know, for psychologists, for Mm dieticians, for psychiatrists, for general practitioners, they'll all need something slightly different. But just to give them some really practical and pragmatic um, tips and tools to be able to take this knowledge into clinical practice to help people. Mm -hmm. The other thing too I think is really important, and this is something we're focusing on as well, is developing new models of care. You know, doctors only have 15 minutes or something with Mm -hmm. a patient. And it's not really enough time to help people to make the lifestyle changes that we know are so essential for their health. So we need a new model where we train, you know, whether it's nurse practitioners or peer support workers, whatever it is, to um, support people over the long term in making Mm -hmm. those changes to their lifestyle behaviors. So we need to to look at things differently. Lifestyle medicine, it's becoming a very big um, word certainly in the U.S., but increasingly in Europe and mm-hmm. now in Australia as well. It's really starting to gather momentum because if we can get the basics right, uh, you know, diet, exercise, sleep, smoking, cessation, substance use, you know, mm-hmm. to a certain degree, Um that supports all other aspects of therapy. So it's not an either or thing. It's Mm -hmm. not saying don't take antidepressants, you must Mm. go and eat kale. It's saying you you do this stuff and anything else you do is going to, to work better.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a really important point because I think as much as we are talking about the benefits of nutrition and these other lifestyle factors and mental health, I guess I want to make it clear that what we're not saying is that if you're depressed, a salad is going to fix it. That's not the deal.
2: And, you know, there is absolutely a a very important place for medications. And thank God for medications. I've seen them give people's lives back. Mm. They're extraordinary. Uh, There's a very important role for therapy and psychotherapy and all of CBT, etc. These are not either ors. Mm -hmm. But if you don't get the foundations right, it's like having a Porsche and putting dirty, sandy, watered down petrol into it Mm -hmm. and expecting it to run well. It Mm -hmm. just won't. Yeah. And then nothing else you do to it, new tyres or, you know,
1: exactly whatever,
2: that, it's not going to work.
1: <laughs> Thank you. All right. I know we're rapidly, rapidly running out of time, but I guess I wanted, for the sake of the audience, just to perhaps bust a couple of myths or just add some evidence to some of the things that they might see, especially on social media um, and some of the questions that come in. Would that be okay? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So shall we start with meat? <laughs> <laughs> I'll try but to keep a really
2: it. interesting one because in the US it uh, red meat intake has been consistently associated with poor health outcomes from, we're talking here about the epidemiological literature um, but for a start meat in the US is pretty horrible it comes from feedlots and it's not a particularly healthy product but um, there's there's various reasons why we think that that might not be an accurate uh, representation of the, the health um, outcomes that come from eating meat. Mm-hmm. And we looked at this in some detail. In Australia, we're fortunate enough to have really good quality grass fed meat. So our beef and lamb, you know, mm-hmm. are coming from paddocks. Um, we wanted to look at whether this was associated, meat intake was associated with mental health because there are a number of papers that have shown. That vegetarians have worse mental health than people who are not vegetarians, but their, the assumption was that this was explained by the reverse causality. Mm-hmm. So people who had poor mental health would change their diet, or maybe a third factor like neuroticism that mm-hmm. may predispose to to both, you know, dietary fringe sort of dietary habits or um, or depression. Um, But the interesting part of this, from my perspective, is that I grew up as a vegetarian and I'm pretty much vegetarian and I've been mostly vegetarian most of my life and that's for ethical and environmental reasons. So when I was doing my PhD, I was quite sure that uh, eating meat would be really bad for your (laughs) mental health. anyway, so looking at the data and I saw some very, very interesting signals, definitely not in the way that I expected. So I did a proper formal study where I looked at uh, the people, that more than 1,000 people that I had in our sample. In this case, they were all women. I excluded the 20 or so vegetarians, the people who identified as vegetarian or who we could see from the answers to their food questionnaires. They just didn't eat any meat at all or any animal um, meats. And then I categorized them according to whether they had the... Um, moderate intake of red meat, according which was recommended by the dietary guidelines, or less than that or more than that. And then I took into account their overall diet quality because, of course, more meat might also be more junk food or it might also be more vegetables. And then what we saw is a very clear U-shaped relationship. So those Mm -hmm. people who had either less than or more than the recommended intake of red meat were twice as likely to have a clinical depressive disorder or an anxiety disorder. So that was a very interesting finding. And as I said, there's been other research that's looked at red meat intake and mental health, and it seems to be consistently associated with worse mental health if you're a vegetarian. So mm-hmm. we don't know whether this is cause or effect, mm-hmm. and we uh, we can only you know guess, and it's a difficult thing to do um, a randomized controlled trial about. Mm-hmm. It would have to be long term, mm-hmm. and there would be all sorts of difficulties, but it does seem to be, according to the data that are available and published so far, that red meat seems to be important for good mental health. Okay. that we just don't know if it's cause or, or effect
1: or okay. something else. Okay. So, so to take that to the other extreme of the, the new rise in, in carnivorism or the... Sorry.
2: <laughs> 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 Honestly... <laughs> there's nothing like the internet for throwing a lot on the, the, mad, the madness of humans.
1: <laughs> because, so, do you have a personal or professional uh, opinion on, and maybe we'll keep it just to mental health, because there's lots of claims yes. about diet, um, about weight loss, and all of that stuff. Um, but what what is your opinion on on carnivorism? Um,
2: Look, I think anything that you know. <sighs> <laughs> without, without any formal studies looking at carnivorism and mental health, I couldn't hazard guess.
0: Sure,
2: but Any extreme diets like that I think are, are really, really, really problematic because we know what's good for us. If you look at the data on a Mediterranean-style diet, so diets essentially that are high in plant foods and a diverse range of plant foods including legumes, nuts and seeds, high in the healthy fats from olive oil and fish, avocado and nuts, uh, these are absolutely consistently associated with better health outcomes and all of the many, many intervention studies where they actually use that as an experiment show the same thing. So those data are so extensive and so consistent that we know that that style of eating is really good for us. What we see in the U.S. is this obsession at the moment with, first it was the low-carbohydrate diet, Mm -hmm. which was sort of low-carb, high-protein. Now it's become like a ketogenic diet, Mm -hmm. low-carb, high-fat. Everything we know about the gut so far from both animal and human studies tells us that that's a really bad uh, combination for Mm -hmm. the gut. I work with a big organization over here in Australia, and they have many data that we've not yet um, you know, analyzed and published, but they tell us that the people who uh, are on ketogenic-style diets, their gut microbiota are not a healthy profile, okay. and these people get very cross when they're told that <laughs> <laughs> they're actually going to be really bursting with health. There's a lot of misinformation. Mm-hmm. Everyone's an expert. Lots of people have something to sell. Um, people are desperate for ways to lose weight, and I get sure. that, um, But and in the short term, definitely reducing carbohydrates uh, and increasing slightly protein and fat, that is a good strategy to lose weight in the short term. Over the long term, it's not sustainable generally, and weight loss outcomes at one year between low-carb or low-fat diets are about the same. So. It's it has appeal. People tend to then make give it these magical qualities, mm. but uh, the data do not support those sorts of diets as being good for our health. We need more research though, because I think different diets will be better or worse for some people than for mm-hmm. others. There's mm-hmm. probably going to be a lot of inter, individual variability because of people's different microbiomes. Uh, And this is something that we're doing a lot of research on and we hope to be able to shed some light on in the future.
1: Fantastic. Thank you. Um, Is there are there any other big myths that I might have forgotten or ignored or just cut out of my brain (laughs) that need Uh responding to?
2: You know, there's this, this idea that saturated fat is not the bogey that we once thought it was. Now, I think that there's some truth to that. It's certainly not the terrible bogey, but it depends on where that fat is sitting. So it looks like good whole fat dairy products, yay, they're okay in mm-hmm. you know normal, moderate amounts. Uh, the, process, the The saturated fat you get from meat and processed meats, not so good. Um, and for a whole range of reasons, it seems to promote inflammation, it seems to promote inflammation in the brain, uh, it seems to promote the growth of nasty bacteria in the gut, the mm-hmm. ones that are associated with inflammation and disease. Um, I personally love a good cheese and a good um, fermented <laughs> dairy. You know, I make my own kefir, I love blue cheese, I have um, full fat Greek yogurt. Uh, but I don't eat enormous amounts of butter, and I wouldn't eat fatty meats and processed meats and things like that. So this idea that you know you can go and eat lots and lots of bacon and butter and everything else and mm-hmm. it's all good for you—that is definitely not supported by the data. And that's that's a that's a myth, I think.
1: Fantastic. So it seems like, and probably you know, surprise, surprise, the the message is eat good. Your veggies, eat exactly. veggies, like, exactly. Eat vegetables, guys. Eat. a a high quality it's a high quality diet rather than anything else isn't it it's the quality of our intake seems to make the difference
2: so it's it's fiber and polyphenols and these come from plant foods so a range of plant foods the fiber that you get from different whole grain cereals like oats and barley and rye and things like that and of course the legumes are really important the beans and and chickpeas and those sorts of things The fibre is really important, the polyphenols that you get from fruits and vegetables are really important, the fats that you get from fish and olive oil and avocados and nuts are really important. So it's that whole thing of eat real food, not too much, mostly plants.
1: And what a place to wrap up. Thank you so much, Felice. Um, If people want to follow you for the lowdown on the latest research, where should they go?
2: Well, I'm on Twitter. Um, and you know, often really <laughs> very vociferously on Twitter, and sometimes I'm more um, professional and grown up. <laughs> uh, we have the Food and Mood Centre website, which we're redoing, so it's going to be even bigger and better and more compre- comprehensive. But that's got a lot of really good info written in a way that's very accessible for a lay audience. Um, We've got the Food and Mood Centre on Facebook, although I'm sometimes a bit lazy about updating that. And then we've got the International Society for Nutritional Psychiatry Research, which is open for membership to uh, researchers but also clinicians and allied health professionals. And we had our first major meeting in Washington last year and our next one will be in London (gasps) in October 2019. And we want Kimberly Wilson to come along and maybe even give a talk.
1: Well, I will will certainly be in attendance. I I, I will sit in the front row with i'm always the first one to ask a question i am that person too. <laughs> fantastic thank you so so much i'm sure my audience will absolutely love this episode and i will put all the links uh how to find you in the show notes so thank you very very much oh
2: look it's been such a pleasure thank you so much
1: and that's it thanks again to felice for making the time to speak with me you can follow her on instagram and twitter at felice jacka which is f-e-l-i-c-e-j-a-c-k-a and you can keep up to date with nutritional psychiatry research by following the blog at www.isnpr.org coming up i'll be thinking about the psychology of wellness And looking at the evidence that herbs can improve memory. So I do hope you'll join me for those. That just leaves me to thank you very much for listening. And until next time, I continue to wish you the very best of health. Planning for your next trip?